A shooting massacre happens and the aftermath's always the same. Weeks of mourning and soul searching, funerals, government officials promise to pass new laws to restrict the use and sales of guns, and gun rights activists call for more people to be armed and sue to get those new laws and restrictions overturned. That exact scenario happened in Stockton, California in 1989 after a gunman shot and killed five children and wounded 29 others. The state quickly issued an assault weapons ban, the first of its kind in the United States. And now a federal judge has ruled it's unconstitutional. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Floods in Tennessee leave more than 20 people dead and dozens missing. President Biden says the deadline to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan may be extended past August 31st. And Doritos pays an Australian teen more than $14,000 for finding a puffed out chip. This news is a month old, but hey, any chance I could take to praise Doritos and show how they're superior to Flaming Hot Cheetos, I'm taking it. Today, we talk about California's huge role in influencing gun control laws in the U.S., but also how it inspires backlashes to such efforts. We discuss the state's historic assault weapons ban and why it was overturned. And we also talk to the mayor of San Jose, who wants his city to be the first in the United States to require gun owners to buy liability insurance. Gun rights advocates are already threatening a lawsuit. On July 4th, U.S. District Judge Roger T. Benitez overturned California's assault weapons ban. The move was immediately met with cheers by gun advocates and jeers by opponents. California Attorney General Rob Bonta vows to appeal the decision. Patrick McGreevy covers California's state legislature for the L.A. Times. He recently wrote about Judge Benitez's decision and the history of California and gun laws. Patrick, welcome to The Times. Thank you. So the Stockton massacre of 1989, I vaguely remember it as a 10-year-old, but of course I've covered its influence as an adult. And it came at an interesting point in California history. The NRA held a lot of power at the state capitol at the time, and a Republican, George Duke Majan, was a governor. But the public was so outraged that politicians sprang into action to do something about it. That's right. The legislature had killed other bills that uh, would have re- regulated guns because the NRA basically held sway at the Capitol. But uh, people on both sides of the aisle were were really outraged by what happened in Stockton, you know, the children being killed. And even the Republican governor, George Duke Majin, uh, decided that it was time for change. And what were the conversations going on at the time? Again, how did... Democrats get Republicans to agree, hey, we need to, like, especially with these assault weapons, we need to do something about them. Yeah, so it was basically uh, the same legislators that had in the past tried made one more effort, and it was a hard, full court press, basically. So uh, at the time, Mike Roos, an assemblyman, uh, decided that uh, the law that had been proposed in the past that sort of generally outlawed assault weapons was too vague and included many guns that hunters used and they were popular with hunters. So what Mike Roos and others did was they went through a catalogs, gun catalogs, and they picked 60 guns that were clearly assault weapons used potentially uh, more appropriate for the battlefield than in the state of California. And they wrote a bill that limited the, the weapons ban to those assault weapons. And they did a lot of work with their Republican and and moderate Democratic colleagues. They actually took them out to the California Highway Patrol shooting range and showed them the sort of the devastating impact of an assault weapon, how many uh, bullets it fires per minute. Just it awed a lot of people. 
And so then eventually it did get to Governor uh, Duke Majin, and he sat down and listened, and Mike Cruz said he was very sober about it. And eventually the Republican governor signed the bill. Yeah, this wasn't a case where, okay, you think of a gun, you think of one singular bullet, then again and again. No, this is just bullets being splattered against a wall, in this case, at a shooting range. Now imagine what it does to people. And as you wrote in, this, in your story for The Times, California had had this long history with gun violence. What were some of the other key events right before the Stockton massacre that also weighed on the minds of these politicians? Yeah, there was a terrible shooting in uh, San Ysidro at a McDonald's that took uh, more than 20 lives. Um, there had been other uh, mass shootings, and but this one, I think because it involved children, really uh, caused emotions to change in the, in the capital. People started looking at the issue uh, a lot differently. Yeah, the San Isidro massacre happened in 1984, and in Stockton, it was mostly uh, refugee children, Cambodian children, who got killed. And the person who did the shooting, a, a report later on found out that he wanted to specifically target Asians in the massacre that happened. So this ban that happened in 1989, how consequential was it in the ensuing three decades in lowering the number of gun deaths and injuries we've seen in California? So in uh, the state's defense of its law in the court papers, they said that the number of gun deaths went down in, by half uh, from 1993 to 2000. So that in 2000, uh, 2,900 people died, but you know previously over 5,000 had died. And then you know after California acted, uh, other states acted, and there was a national gun ban uh, enacted by uh, Congress in 1994. And the state's court papers said that. Uh, basically, uh, before when the new federal law took effect, it cut uh, the number of mass shootings and deaths by about 40%. And after it was uh, lifted, because it, it ran for 10 years and then it expired and wasn't renewed, uh, gun deaths soared by more than 100% in the years after that. And the federal assault weapons ban, when did it expire? So it, it ran from 1994 to 2004. And wh why wasn't it renewed? Well, you know, Dianne Feinstein, the senator who uh, was sponsor of the original bill, just couldn't get the votes. I mean, uh, Congress was divided. You had years where Republicans held control in one of the houses, and it just hasn't um, gone anywhere. And they've, they're still attempting it to this day. And of course, for Feinstein, the issue was personal, not just because of all the massacres that happened in California, but also because of her own career in San Francisco. She was there when uh, Harvey Milk and George Moscone, uh, the, the supervisor and mayor of San Francisco, were killed, not by assault weapons, but nevertheless gun violence. Yeah, exactly. That, since that incident, uh, she was in City Hall when it happened. She feels like there should be uh, some sort of restriction on, on handguns as well as assault weapons. We'll be back after this break. So this assault weapons ban in California stayed on the books for over 30 years. The gun lobby despised it and fought it all these years, all these decades, but nothing ever happened. But then here comes U.S. District Court Judge Roger Benitez and his July 4th permanent injunction. It ruled the ban like you couldn't do it anymore. And his arguments were pretty, uh, pretty passionate. Yeah, I mean, he said essentially it's unconstitutional that you can't um, outlaw a gun that is commonly used and that he likened to a Swiss Army knife. His quote was, um, it's good for both uh, battle and home. So, and his comments actually made a lot of people uh, even angrier because they didn't see the logic of his argument. They thought he was politicizing it. And so, as you said, Attorney General Bonta took it right to the appeals court. The appeals court is... Uh, 
Judge Benitez is ruling on ICE for a while until the decision is made on the merits of the law, but definitely a, a challenge to one of the top bans, and it's potentially going to have repercussions in other states. And at the same time, Judge Benitez's ruling also inspired a lot of cheering from the gun lobby. Uh, our colleague, Lauren Nelson, did a whole story about there's like a cult almost around Judge Benitez where they call him like St. Benitez of the Holy AK-47 or something. Yeah, he's got, uh, you know, the gun rights groups are really uh, seeing that he's the way to get this whole thing thrown out because they believe their long-term strategy is that maybe the appeals court overrules Benitez. Their strategy is to get to the U.S. Supreme Court that after President Trump is a lot more conservative than it was before. And they believe that if this gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, gun laws, many of them, including this one, potentially will be set aside. And Benitez's ruling right now is on hold, though, because of the appeal by California Attorney General Bonta and also pending decisions in other gun cases. What are those cases about and how could they affect the injunction of Benitez? Yeah, the big one is uh, Benitez put a, a challenge or decided that there was a law that he didn't think it was constitutional. And basically, it would have banned uh, ammunition magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, which are commonly used with assault weapons. Um, in the San Bernardino terrorist attack, they found many of these large capacity magazines. And uh, the state, uh, basically, the legislature uh, banned those magazines, but the gun rights groups sued Im immediately and the judge overturned it. And in the meanwhile, gun rights advocates, as you said earlier, across the country, they're worried about what Judge Benitez's ruling is going to mean for similar laws. Yeah, not only um, potentially the, the U.S. Supreme Court overruling the law, but also potentially damaging the political chances of the federal of Congress uh, enacting, reenacting um, an assault weapon ban. I mean, basically, it might be harder for people in Congress to vote for one if the whole thing is up in the air in California. And then finally, Attorney General of California, Rob Bonta, what is he saying and why he's appealing uh, Benitez's ruling? Yeah, he says that Benitez's decision has no merit, that it has no, uh, there's no logic to it in terms of the law and the Constitution, that the um, other assault weapon bans have been challenged in court and the courts have upheld them as constitutional, that the government has a right to uh, ban weapons that it feels are uh, a danger to the public. Uh, it has to sort of counter the Second Amendment rights of gun owners with an argument that th this is a weapon that potentially um, has extraordinary uh, risk to the public health. Thank you so much for this interview, Patrick. You're welcome. In May, a transportation worker shot and killed nine of his co-workers in San Jose before killing himself. The massacre prompted Mayor Sam Licardo to pursue ordinances to clamp down on gun violence. All gun owners would have to buy liability insurance and pay an annual fee to cover costs related to gun violence. And prior to those moves, the San Jose City Council approved another ordinance that requires all gun sellers to videotape in-person gun sales. None of this has ever been attempted in the United States, and now other municipalities are getting inspired to try and do the same. Mayor Sam, welcome to The Times. Great to be with you, Gustavo. When did you think to yourself that requiring gun insurance, paying an annual fee, videotaping all purchases, that that would be a crucial way to help stop gun violence in San Jose? Well, we've been working on this for a couple of years, looking for a variety of solutions, because we know there's not going to be one panacea. Uh, you know, unlike 
with a coronavirus where there's one vaccine, we, we've got a challenge with 300 million guns in this country. And so it's going to take a lot of different solutions. So we've been working on different uh, items. And so we got over the goal line this requirement to videotape gun purchases uh, and audio tape them because we think at least the evidence shows that is an important way to be able to crack down on the third-party straw man purchases of guns by criminal organizations that are trying to get guns illegally. So, so we're going to try a lot of different uh, options. We know not nearly enough is being done at the federal level. So more and more cities are simply having to step up. What's the financial burden right now in San Jose because of gun violence? Well, we've got a consultant actually is looking at that very question. Uh, if you looked at the collective costs of the community, uh, the estimate he came up with was more than $440 million. And we're a city of about a million residents. Um, if you just looked at the taxpayers and what they're paying simply for response for emergency rooms and, and police officers and so forth, the number is a little north of $40 million. Per year. Every year. That's right. So uh, there's no question there's being enormous burden as being imposed on all of us because of gun violence, whether we're directly impacted by the devastation of the violence or not. Uh, and the reality is that, you know, taxpayers are subsidizing gun owners. And I'm not sure that a lot of taxpayers are aware of that. Yeah, with costs like that, it seems that trying to clamp down on gun violence actually helps out the bottom line of the city. At least that, that's, that's some of the thinking behind it. Yeah, I mean, we'd all love to have more resources for emergency medical response, for example. And if it just so happens that we know this is a cause for that cost or that expense, we should be able to charge a fee to be able to recover it. So the ordinances, let's go through them. Under the liability insurance one, is it retroactive? Do current gun owners have to buy it as well? Yeah, the idea is that as soon as we get it formally enacted, everyone who owns a gun would have to have insurance. Uh, and the good news is that insurance is pretty widely available. In fact, many homeowners and renters already have a policy that includes it. And if you don't have it, you can usually get a rider for next to nothing or no additional cost. So um, we think that's pretty easy for folks to comply with. And we simply want to make sure people are actually getting the insurance and they're aware of it because we know there are a lot of victims who are not compensated uh, for uh, accidental shootings. And there's more than 27,000 of those injuries every year and more than 500 deaths every year. And we also happen to live in a, a country with more than four and a half million kids who live in a home where a gun is loaded and unlocked. And so there's a lot of things that insurance companies would be requiring gun owners to do to get discounts, for example, on on the premiums. And if an insurance company can encourage folks to get a gun safe, to get a trigger lock, to take a gun safety class, then we're going to have a lot safer kids in this country. And that's not a bad thing. And if people refuse to buy the insurance, the liability insurance, what would be the penalties? Yeah. So we didn't want to criminalize the failure to get insurance, but there would be fines and there would be the ability for most importantly, I think, for the police to seize guns. So we know, obviously, crooks aren't going to comply with the law. Criminals don't do that. Um, but what this does is it gives officers a tool. So when they're responding to the domestic violence call and they ask the question, as they always ask, is there a gun in the home? And they find the gun uh, and they don't find any evidence of anyone having gotten uh, insurance, uh, then it provides an easy mechanism for the police to get an unsafe gun out of the unsafe hands. Uh, and that is... I think what might be the best benefit of this approach, which is we can clearly distinguish those gun owners who are lawful, who are going to comply, 
And those gun owners we know are not going to comply with the law and get the guns out of their hands. We'll be back after this break. Mary Licardo, so we were talking about how all gun owners in San Jose would be required to get liability insurance, but they would also have to pay a fee as well, right? Yeah. I mean, these two policies are really designed to have uh, serve different functions. Insurance obviously compensates victims of gun harm, uh, and it also hopefully encourages safer behavior. That's what we see, for example, uh, in the case of drivers. We know we get good driver discounts or we use uh, ABS brakes or, or get airbags and, and we get discounts. So we think insurance can help make for safer gun ownership and compensate victims. With the fee, the goal is simply to compensate taxpayers. Uh, in the state of California, taxpayers are paying more than $1.4 billion a year for emergency rooms, for emergency medical response and ambulances and police to respond to gun violence. And so if our taxpayers are subsidizing gun violence in this state, then we ought to be doing what we can to compensate taxpayers. Because certainly the Second Amendment protects everyone's right to own a gun, but it doesn't require taxpayers to subsidize gun ownership. And that's what we're getting at. And then another ordinance that San Jose approved, that would require gun sellers to videotape all transactions. How much would that cost uh, for the retailers? Yeah, and that's something we have actually approved already. But um, what we know is that for all the, the gun stores that, that we've investigated, they already have video equipment, obviously, in their stores for their own safety. But we're simply requiring that they point the camera at the transaction and audio and video record what's happening there in the transaction. And the whole goal here is, is we know that straw purchasing uh, is a term used to describe uh, you know, what happens when a, a criminal organization, a gang, goes and finds somebody who can go buy a gun uh, and, and, and to get the gun for them, right? And we, we know that there are thousands of guns that get into the wrong hands this way. By actually videotaping and audiotaping, we can verify identity of who's buying the gun. Uh, and that helps us also, it helps law enforcement be able to track down when there are straw purchasing rings going on, uh, who's really the one, uh, who's the culprit. And as you mentioned earlier, this isn't the first time you've uh, been pushing or proposing such measures. In 2019, the San Jose City Council also tried something similar in the wake of a massacre at the Gilroy Garlic Festival. Gilroy is a city about half an hour south of San Jose. Why do you think it went nowhere then? And what do you attribute the passage of the ordinances now? Well, let me explain. It's a little more complicated than that. Um, we introduced the, the fee and, and the insurance proposal back in 2019. It never actually went to a vote of the council. Um, what we knew at the time and as we've learned more about is uh, we needed to go do some work to get essentially a study done uh, to ensure that whatever we passed would be legal. So we needed an economist to go figure out what is the cost uh, to taxpayers of gun ownership and gun violence in our community so we can actually assess the correct fee. And under state law, if we charge too much for that fee, then this fee will get struck down in court. And so we had to go do that work, and we had to do that in collaboration with the county, who's and he's got epidemiologists and, and other folks. And we got interrupted by a pandemic, obviously, and that got everyone's attention in the health department. Um, so, so everything slowed down. We're now at a place where everybody's able to work on this, and we can get this over the goal line. 
There's critics, of course, a lot of critics, and they have a roster critiques against you that what you propose violates the Second Amendment, that it violates California's preemption law, which doesn't allow municipalities to supersede state laws, that all you're doing is grandstanding, that these ordinances place an unfair burden on law-abiding good citizens. So your response to all those critiques? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of complex legal issues there, and I'm happy to, to but let me just take the biggest one, which is, hey, this is a constitutional right. How can you charge a fee uh, in some way that might impose on folks and their ability to exercise that constitutional right? And first, uh, there's no question if someone does not have the resources to pay the fee, for example, uh, we need to provide a waiver process. Uh, and there's a pretty standard way of doing it. We just have someone fill out a waiver. It says, I'm eligible for food stamps. I can't afford it. Uh, but here's my signature saying, I attest that I'm trying my best to comply. That's all that's required. And that's pretty standard in lots of contexts. For example, uh, you know, the Seventh Amendment gives us all a right to be able to use the courts to file a lawsuit to protect our constitutional rights. But there's a fee that's charged for filing lawsuits. This is standard stuff. So they have a waiver for folks who can't afford it. The rest of us pay a fee. There's no constitutional violation in that. Uh, similarly, you know, we all have a First Amendment right to association. But if you want to go form an organization in this state or any other state, you go to the Secretary of State, uh, and this may be a political organization or some other, and you're going to pay a filing fee. This is not unusual. Constitutional rights don't exist in a vacuum. It still costs public agencies something to enable folks to take advantage of those rights. And as long as the fees are reasonable, we expect this will pass. How about the charges that you're only doing this to further your political career? Yeah, you know, it's not a, uh, a great recipe for building widespread consensus. I can tell you that much. Uh, you know, the, the hate mail and the hate email is certainly pouring in. Uh, there's no question that this is controversial and it gets attention, yes. The only reason why it's controversial is because literally nothing is being done in Congress right now. Uh, and, and Congress has completely abdicated its responsibility over this entire area. And even something so simple as passing an assault weapons ban, which expired about a decade and a half ago, it seems to be nearly impossible. And so inevitably you're going to see mayors and local officials stepping up to say, look, if you guys aren't going to do something to protect my residents, I'm going to. And, and we're all going to try. And I've got a lot of other mayors in, throughout the country have been emailing me and call me saying, tell me how it goes. We want to jump in, you know, and and look, obviously, everyone wants to see is it going to get through the courts or not? And, and that's going to be the battle. Uh, I expect we'll get plenty of lawsuits. Uh, no good deed when it comes to gun regulation. No good deed goes unlitigated. And we're going to push and make sure that um, we're doing everything in a way that's constitutional and legally compliant. You mentioned, uh, Mayor, the federal assault weapons bans that uh, expired about 13 years ago. Well, here in California, there was a state assault weapons ban that was just found unconstitutional this year by a federal judge. Given that court ruling and others, what makes you think that San Jose will be able to succeed in court once these lawsuits inevitably come against those ordinances? Uh, there's no question there's a deep divide in the courts. And an awful lot's going to depend on what the composition of the judges is on whatever panel you happen to draw on the Ninth Circuit or the Supreme Court that day. We're going to do everything we can. And we've been working with a great team of uh, organizations, uh, including uh, the Gifford Law Center, for example. It's been offering us a lot of uh, legal assistance. We've got great attorneys and private firms who are offering their services pro bono, like Kecker Van Nest and 
Uh, Joe uh, Kachat has, has been very generous. We've got a lot of folks who are ready to jump in with us. And the good news is an awful lot of those folks are pretty good attorneys uh, and uh, they've been litigating a long time. So I'm confident we're gonna find a path that's gonna be legal and constitutional. Mayor Licardo, thank you for the interview. Hey, it's been great to be with you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, an LA Dodgers star pitcher tests the limits of Major League Baseball's push to drive out sexual harassment for the national pastime. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Please, please, please don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Marina Peña, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Epitt. This episode was also produced by Stephen A. Cuevas. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. Gracias.